Hi, policy heads. Um, welcome back to Politics versus Policy with Jared and Sheila. And today we have joining us Dr. Mark Trifford. Hello, Mark. Hello. Good to be here. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for, for joining us today. It's <laughs> a pleasure. <laughs> so today we're discussing about the democracy in the 21st century, the declining political trust and the question of legitimacy. So before we go to our main discussion, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce... Um, so Mark here is a public policy and politics scholar at the University of Melbourne. Uh, Mark has a very rich background in the policy arena. He formerly was a strategic communications and policy consultant for the government and private sectors. Mm-hmm. And he worked as the Director of Strategic Communications for the Business Council of Australia mm-hmm. and was also a Corporate Affairs Executive General Manager at the West Farmers Limited. Mark is currently instru- interested in the data privacy and big technology regulations policy um, concerning what needs to be done and the implications of not regulating effectively the use of data. Mm. I feel like we haven't introduced Mark enough if we haven't played that little game invented. Yes, definitely. Yeah, we, need to to <laughs> <laughs> we need to bring the game in. So uh, we've kind of outlined to Mark how the, how the game works with um, establishing a yes or no, agree or disagree, or either or the answer. Uh, so Mark, I'm just going to fire some quick, quick questions at you, and you've got a couple of seconds to think about it and just answer it without... You don't need to explain yourself. Just go for an answer. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So, uh, representative democracy that we know is outdated. Agree or disagree? Agree. Big data could improve political equality of public inputs. Agree or disagree? Disagree. There is a worrying fusion between information and entertainment in regards to social media. Agree or disagree? Agree. Uh, the media most of the time does not represent the public. Agree or disagree? Disagree. A pure hierarchical bureaucratic system or a pure market-based governance? Neither. Governments will always face a trade-off between good governance and responsible government. Agree. Right. Interesting answers. Yeah, very. (laughs) You sort of cross-pollinate all that. They're probably very contradictory, but they're really good questions. Yeah, they are really good questions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I definitely need to think about that next time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So coming back to our main discussion, Mm. um, I'm going to briefly explain that um, we acknowledge that last year, the director of Democracy 2025, Mike Evans, wrote, and I quote. Around the world, democracies are distrusted by a majority of their citizens. The 2018 Elman Trust Barometer puts the figure at 80%. The Australian citizens' satisfaction with democracy has decreased from 86% in 2007 under Howard administration to only 41% in 2018 under Turnbull's administration. In 2018, Lowy Institute, among many others, released reports on political trust and democracy that reveal the lowest point of political trust in Australia. Along with this, it exposes the public's declining confidence in the democratic system. And in 2019, Lowy Institute reports that the confidence rate to democracy has slightly increased compared to 2018. But I'm fairly sure it was before the bushfires in Mm. Australia Mm. uh, started occurring. Um, despite this, however, 30% of young adults aged 18 to 29 state that in some circumstances, a non-democratic government can be preferable. So listening to these or reading this, hmm. what are the first thing that comes out in your mind? One, it's a really serious issue hmm. um, because democracy of all political systems relies on consent of people and people have to trust in the government and the decision-making process um, and literally buy in to those processes for democracy to work. So, you know, as opposed to authoritarian governments where you don't need trust, you just get people to do stuff or comply. Um, Without trust in democracy, then the system, you know, effectively it's the software of the system that that breaks down. The other thing I would say is that I am old enough to remember Mm. when the Berlin Wall fell and... Mm end of communism and Western democracy and Western free markets was seen as that was proof that that was the only way to manage the modern world because communism had failed. And at the time there was like a whole mass of 
opinion articles and books that are really triumphant about the West. And the, the thing that's really, really striking about this is in just a blink of an eye, historically, 30 years, mm. the whole thing has gone pear-shaped. And the real paradox of the 21st century is that the feedstock of democracy, individual choice, debate, information is at, at unprecedented levels, which mm. is all the stuff that you would think would make a really great, mm. vibrant yeah. democracy. And yet we're at this sort of nadir of public trust and, and engagement, and particularly among young people. I mean, that's the other serious thing about it is that future generations that inherit the system are much more distrustful of it. And as that Lowy Institute um, surveys found that young people are more uh, likely to you know, opt for something which is non-democratic. So it's all not good. Mm. But the issue is trying to diagnose what's going on. Um, doesn't mean it's unfixable, but um, we have to have a pretty serious, honest appraisal of just how fit for purpose our political system is in the 21st century. Well, actually, looking at that that quote before, um, and the figures pointing out that Australian citizens' satisfaction with democracy has decreased from 86% in 2007 mm. Mm -hmm. under the Howard administration to mm. the uh, 41% in 2018. Yep. During that period, yep. um, we've seen a significant rise in social media yeah. and disinformation within the world. So do you, and, and we can, yep. we've grown in that period, and do you see that as primarily through social media? Yeah, I, I do. And this is not to dish social media. Mm, I mean, in, in theory, well, not in theory, but in practice, um, you know, having more people involved in the political process and in the policy debate and, you know, whatever you call discussion, even if it can be weird and wonderful, people coming together, exchange ideas, is, is in theory a really good thing. I mean, the thing about Australia is that people would argue that that, you know, half that decline from 80 to 40% is due to, you know, the leadership ructions mm. and people. But the real mistake that people make about this debate is that they tend to blame, you know, one-off factors. But if you have a look at the US, mm. there's a similar issue that's just manifested in different ways as Trumpism. In Britain, it's manifested through the logjam of Brexit and, you know, dis distrust of people who um, occupy you know, part of it. So... You've got to look underneath what's going on. Mm. And I think, you know, social media, when you think about it, and I look at it at a structural level, that what really confounds our current system of democracy by social media is it's just totally different to how democracy works mm. as it's structured at the moment. So, you know, I'm old enough to remember when I was a political advisor pre the internet, not the internet, but pre-social media, <laughs> yeah. pre the wheel. Pre the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the, you know, we just used to get representations from citizens by letter mm. or, you know, phone call, and it was one-on-one. -on -one. And you couldn't scale that up, you know, you just one person. It was a one-on-one -on -one transaction. Yeah. Or exchange, whereas now any representative in a parliament is probably going to get you know, f I don't know, I'm just saying 400, 500 emails a day, you know, we're going to be mentioned mm. on Twitter. You know, the whole mm. thing just is exponential. Yeah. And the representative system, which, you know, basically came out of the 19th century, can't deal with it. Mm. So people think, oh, it's not responsive because, you know, my representative doesn't get back to me in like three seconds or mm. isn't engaging in the debate. Um, I mean, the other issue is that um, social media... And th again, this is this is about diversity, and in theory, it's a good thing. It, it just allows everyone to have their own almost customised debate. Mm. So politics becomes incredibly, and the discussion about politics and policy becomes incredibly fragmented. Mm. Everyone comes at it in their different way. You know, it's identity politics, blah, blah, blah. And the representative system is basically seeing the world in a binary sense. It's mm. left or right. Mm. Yeah. And one person's solution on the left is, in theory incompatible with this with the solution on the right and we all know that in the 21st century which is so complex mm. that there is no one solution you need a you know so we i guess what i'm saying is that just by illustrating those two things about social media i, I think the system was struggling um f for 10 years prior to that but it's be the struggle for our representative system of democracy has become 
hyper a hyper struggle because social media is basically extrapolated and amplified the trends that have been going on previously you know the increasing diversity which makes a two-party system to manage our society almost ridiculous yeah. a system where you're supposed to go and talk to a politician one-on-one uh you know and the representative i mean they still have these sort of logs i think in politics, <laughs> in a minister's office where you log, you know, and it's the letter, it's mm. the phone call. People don't communicate like that anymore. Yeah. So anyway, it's a long way of saying that social media, I think, has been a major structural challenge to democracy and democracy does not get it because representatives still just use social media to tell people right. what they're doing rather than actually having a dialogue. It's, it's interesting because when I looked at the surveys hmm. and the charts from OECD, there is a pattern that the highest political trust being the countries with the least democratic regimes. Exactly. Yeah. So do you think there's a paradox in democracy itself? Well, as students of governance, we talked about this idea of input and output legitimacy, which is sort of like just a pretty binary way of thinking about policy where... Output legitimacy is how effective the policy is, and the inputs are really, you know, what people put into it. Yeah. You know, and in a democracy, you have everyone putting into it in theory, whereas in an authoritarian system, you only have, you know, mm-hmm. a small group of people. Uh, look, there's been no work done on this um, because it's really hard to measure. But my sense is that if you run that sort of model over democracy, what you're getting it explains it really well, I think. You get a system that has too many rich and varied and scaled up inputs because it's social media and it's this and it's that Mm. and it's global issues. And the democracy factory, you know, this mediating system, parliament, political parties, all the things that convert individual choice and preference into collective policy outcomes, i.e. output legitimacy, it's just breaking down. So we're not getting any out... We're not not saying we're not getting any, but the outputs are really skewed Mm. or they're very partisan or they're very skewed towards big money so the paradox is that young people would want an authoritarian system but i actually think that's the wrong reading of it what they want in a complex world is certainty Mm. about policy outcomes Mm. like everyone else does like i had in comparison in the 1980s and 90s when i was growing up i mean you know stuff happened it's not to say stuff happened now but the system is just too slow too binary, too whatever, it's out of sync. It's almost stranded from the 21st century. And young people, I mean, they don't want authoritarianism. I I think they just want a delivery system of Mm. democracy that delivers. You know, it's not... The other argument about democracy is that it's useless, it's dead. Mm. It's not democracy per se because everyone wants choice. Everyone wants... Mm. You know, Civil liberties. Yeah, everyone wants yeah. control over their destiny. It's the delivery mechanism mm. that's at fault. And you can think of a ne- number of ways where you could reform it by just being smart about how you use social media, for example. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, just having a system of decision-making that doesn't put it in the hands of some ideologue that grew up in student politics, you know, all that yeah, stereotype. All that. I mean, you could, anyway, don't yeah. start me on that. Um, so yeah, so to me, it's yeah. quite straightforward. Mm. It's just being realistic about what's happened, particularly over the last ten years. And I, I think if we come back to like social media mm. and the whole entire new complexity of the twenty first century, mm. is that it is quite straightforward for people when you really look at it. Mm. But when we were talking before um, about politicalization yep. of everything, exactly. and that's mm. what really. Um, tears it's it up for people. It obscures the yeah. real underlying thing. I mean, we're just concentrating on scoring points and, mm. you know... Viral moments. And blah, 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 blah. And, you know, the short-termism of... I mean, things move... Acceleration has always been part of modernity, but I think you can measure empirically that that level of acceleration through digitization of information and scaling up of it has gone exponential over the last 10 or 15 years. And what tends to happen is that you know, when the future keeps rushing at you faster and faster, it no longer exists. It, everything is just in the present. Yeah. So, you know, we keep fighting about now and we mm. forget about what the future is and what the present is. So we, we actually lose context about what 
is potentially going on. So, yeah, so, you know, I mean, it will sort itself out eventually because I think people like yourself, you know, young people intrinsically interested in politics and in good policy outcomes and making the world a better place, you just can't keep going Mm. like this. I mean, there'll be someone in your generation that does something about it. Well, based on discussion about like the public inputs mm. and how it relates to the decline in political trust, yep. do you reckon that public engagement within a political arena would actually solve the problem? It, it's like anything. I mean, you can't have a free-for-all. I mean, democracy is not a free-for-all. I mean, democracy is a system it, that basically finds ways of bringing people together in a sort of way mm. that is, you know, you know organised and gets them in a forum or an arena to cast their collect. I mean, this is whole thing about, you know, I see it as like a factory. It's like you, know, you have these unmediated inputs. They go into something called an election. The election is like basically a head counting exercise. Whoever wins that head counting exercise goes, to, has the power to do what they want in parliament. And parliament's just a forum of debate. Mm. And it's pretty closed. Mm. Have you ever tried to get into parliament house in Canberra? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's Got impossible. Once <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's the people's house, but it's anyway. Through that process, separation of powers. It, I mean, that's the way democracy is organised. I mean, that's the basis. That's the foundation. But what you need is to understand that. I mean, social media, even though it looks like a free for all, it's it's very organised. I mean, it's an algorithmic system mm-hmm. where you know it's just not random, and it's becoming less random because the marketisation of social media means that our choices are really constrained without us realising our choices are constrained. It's actually, that's, I mean, that's another issue which we can talk about, but that's really frightening, I think. So to say that, you know, you know, people should just be saying what they want, they don't anyway. I think we just need to be mature without sounding like a great uncle. Or yeah. like <laughs> we just need to recognise that as human beings, you know, our debates are structured. You just need a different and better structure for people to have a debate. Mm. At the moment, the structure around social media debate is basically driven by marketization. Mm. Mm. I mean, that is the weirdest thing about this whole thing. Mm. And that, to me, it's not just social media that has created the problem for democracy. It's the marketization of social media, which basically drives polarization. So if you're clicking on something and that you like it because it feeds your prejudice, then the market principle behind that in terms of how you know Instagram and mm, Facebook. Facebook, which is actually driven by one company, which is even weirder <laughs> and <Yeah>. scarier. <laughs> so to me, the, that process of social media is being corrupted. Um, it's a really good thing in itself. I mean, it engages people. It gets people interested in politics. It's just that the incentives for people to get organised or sorry, to, to be part of that political debate have been so skewed around... Um, things that have basically meant that people are just going at each other hammer and tongs because the market principles behind social media do not allow for granuality. They just Mm. give you what you want because that minimises the market risk for you not clicking on the particular site that will take you to the advertiser that they want you to find. It's really Mm. frightening. And that gets back to my point about, you know, regulating big tech because when you think about what's happened over the last... I know this sounds like a rant, but... No, it's great. I love it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's trying to just bring pieces together. but And why over the last five years in particular, it's really accelerated because social media... I think the thing that people might want to think about as a defining moment in political debate is when, and this might seem really esoteric, is when Facebook floated on the stock exchange Mm. four or five years ago, which created all these incentives for Facebook to earn lots and lots and lots and lots of money to repay its shareholders, et cetera, et cetera. It's not just Facebook, it's Google. So it just creates all these perverse incentives within big tech, which is only run by three companies. And Mm. I sound like a conspiratorial (laughs) nutter, but that's basically the reality of it. And we've gone from a process 20 years ago where most of information was, you know, run by mass media. Mm. You had a whole bunch of people sitting in an editorial newsroom. I mean, it was very arbitrary. I was a journalist. You made editorial decisions based on all sorts of things. Um, But at least it was open. Mm. So people got their information through a process that people were quite 
familiar with. You know, you had to go and talk to a journalist. The journalist would talk the story to the newsroom. The newsroom, and you know, it was a competitive process. How you get your information now through social media, which is predominantly where people get their information from, who knows? Mm. Well, we know it's an algorithm, but what drives the algorithm? I would argue that the market process has really corrupted the internet. And not because I'm anti-market, it's because it's unregulated. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we, I watched this documentary called The Great Hack yeah, on yeah. Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, it talks about how Facebook and Cambridge Analytica work on yep. Trump election 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting because how how marketized it was and how big the impact was. Absolutely. But we barely see it. Exactly. When, you know, in daily life. If we talk about that, what are the proposed solutions? Well, it's a really good question. I think the most significant thing has happened in the last two or three years, basically, that's come out of that Cambridge Analytica thing. Mm. It's just risen this whole issue to the surface. Look, to be honest, I wasn't really au fait with it. I mean... Mm. I can't claim to be a digital native. So, um, but when I started to think through the implications, um, you know, that was basically the thing of that rant that I just gave you. It's really quite scary for civil society. And I'm not, don't want to sound like a conspiratorialist, but the problem is, is that when the inputs are basically constructed by two or three Mm. companies, I mean, you know, you have all the inputs, but the structure, the rules, the organization of it becomes organized not just by three companies but by a set of principles which are basically aimed at maximizing profit then you know it's like what could possibly go wrong like everything so i guess the most significant thing over the last two or three years is that it's been raised as a public debate i mean there are actual presidential candidates like elizabeth warren Mm. talking about breaking up big tech i don't think that will happen but at least it's getting people to think about the implications Mm. of what is going on that you cannot have in this age of information freedom and fast-moving change, effectively three companies deciding what people wake up and hear and see, and it's just not democracy. Mm. If you think about democracy being a system that multiplies inputs to create better outputs, and that's, that's, that's the weirdness about this day and age. It looks like that because everyone is piling into social media, but the rules are set by three companies, mm. Mm. and we don't know what they are. So I guess you know this whole thing is basically saying the reason why I think why the whole thing has just gone off the rails very quickly in the last five years particularly is because of that basic dynamic. I mean, there, it was going, it just hasn't happened overnight. It's been, you know, deteriorating for some time. I wrote my PhD about the decline of democracy starting in 2009 and finishing 2013. It was basically, in my view, the year before it all started to go really weird. And I, I didn't really factor in social media. Mm. I was just looking at the problems with, um, the, well, the internet generally is creating all these sort of issues that made it difficult for elected representatives to respond. But the whole idea of social media becoming just this incredibly polarized vehicle of, I mean, a lot of good things come in social media and debate, but anger and hatred and extremism. Mm. I don't think anyone anticipated, and and that is really, you know, turned the whole political system to some degree into a level of toxicity that people wouldn't have realised before, which makes it really, really difficult to get good public policy going mm. when all you're getting is a bunch of diatribes and dialogues that aren't based on evidence, they're just based on this here and now, I don't like you because mm. of mm. such and such. I mean, that's not empirical-based policy. So, yeah, so it's a long, again, long way of saying that I think the last five years, when people look back on history, we'll see, you know, the, the intense marketization of social media driven by the listing of companies that are really, 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 really driven to create returns in a short term have just turned the whole thing really, really toxic very, very quickly. Well, I just had to, like, going back to the um, the inputs of social media into yep. a democracy, and yep. and you said you started your PhD in 2009. We saw the rise of the Arab Spring yeah. mm. in the in the early... Um, Absolutely. 2010s. Yep. And that was driven by social media yep. and how people were able to organise protests. And we yep. recently just went 20, through 2019, which was basically a year of a major protests and in Hong Kong and yep. in Lebanon and yep. Chile and a 
lot of Latin and Middle Eastern countries. So do you believe that there is space? Absolutely. And I think this is the thing, don't, even though that was a you know 10-minute whatever <laughs> about the structural issues, it's only because it's been, in my mind, perversely steered in a way. Mm. Uh, and I don't say these people do it deliberately. Mm. I mean, Zuckerberg thinks he's actually saving the world, which mm. is total nonsense. But, you know, he's just a young guy. Has not, well, you know, I don't... Anyway, I mean, he doesn't really have the context of what's going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Arab Spring in 2000, and, what was it, 10 or 11, was really interesting because what it showed, I think, was that people could use social media to organise outside the political system mm. and mm. challenge the political system in a way which was you know, really, really fundamental. That's been replicated in Hong Kong most recently. So what it, what it to me, it, it shows two things, that... You know, people want to take on authoritarian systems. It's not that they, you know, they want to become authoritarian themselves. It's just that it's not those systems aren't delivering what they want. Mm. The same reason why young people are disillusioned with democracy. It's not delivering the stuff that they want um, and not giving them a voice. Um, but the other thing I think it showed, what what the Arab Spring showed, I think, was that political change and policy change is not just something that happens instantaneously mm. you actually need to work at it and i think the mistake that was made in 2010 or the arab spring was that people thought oh you just organize mm. a rally and get everyone together overthrow the dictator and then it will self-organize into a better system yeah. you actually have to do the work as well yeah because egypt right now is, has mm. gone back a step exactly mm. yeah because you know there was a group of people who just could work the political system inverted commas more effectively because they were better organised. Mm. So that that's the, the danger about social media in 2010 was that it lulled people into thinking that you could just organise a, a, a protest, overthrow the government, and then everything would be fine. Mm. It certainly has that incredible ability to get things done and organise protest re and voice very, very quickly. But, yeah, the problem in 2010 was that it just lulled people into a false sense of security that it would just mean that the world would be a better place mm. and now in the 2014 or sorry since 2014 um, with the marketization of the internet that the problem about the internet and social media has got, got a second problem to it mm. you know what I mean so so don't get me wrong I think the internet is revolutionary it's got all the hallmarks of challenging authority in the same way that the scientific revolution did with enlightenment in the 17th century because it just empowers people to make their own judgments. Mm. It's just that in the last five years, that's just on, gone totally pear-shaped. Pear-shaped. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just as a bit of context, the reason why I get really passionate about this is because, again, I'm old enough. When I was working for the Kennett government, uh, and just so my your listeners know, I've never been a member of a political party, so yeah. I'm not that way I just it, well, that was a time before politics was tribalised and you could just work mm. almost like a hired gun yeah. <laughs> for a political party so I was working with Alan Stockdale who was the treasurer at the time but he was also the first minister for multimedia which was the no 890s term for whatever I don't know what it was but it was for the internet and um, and we had all these companies come in from uh, California, Netscape, you know, people, companies you would never imagine. But the reason why I feel really passionate about this is that I was sort of at that time where the promise of the internet was so alluring. Mm. You know, we talked about electronic town hall meetings, sorry, e-town hall meetings, and we talked about reconfiguring government services so they were much more responsive. And to some degree that's happened. Mm. And we looked, the promise was so great in terms of this way of just connecting citizens with the government that you know they elected in a way which made it so much more transparent and accountable mm. and now we have this mm. and it's i think it's one of the great tragedies and it's not irredeemable but it's one of the great tragedies of the 21st century that in the first 20 years of it what that promise of having a system of information and empowerment Mm. has basically been run by three companies mm. but algorithmically dictate your view of reality mm. which makes you powerless well i i, I want to just kind of not you personally but just yeah. you know that's the paradox i mean you were the most empowered generation of history but your reality 
well, making yes. processes run by three companies. Well, to think that sometimes I totally forget that it was only 10 to 15 years ago that governments didn't even have like websites for half the things they do now. Absolutely. Like, mm. like the way that Centrelink is done now, mm. um, I'm, I'm, unfortunately I'm not on it. Um, but you, like, have you done MyGov? Yeah, my MyGov. <laughs> oh, like it's like every, it, to me, it's really nostalgic because it was like a website that came from the 1990s. So I don't look at it. <laughs> Nothing's really changed. Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> like it, it still sometimes feels broken, and you're just like, wow, this is fascinating that this wasn't here before, <laughs> like a couple no, of decades ago. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, nothing. Um, yeah. Anyway, I think talking about like the demand side of why this happens and yeah. we briefly talked about the supply side but to what extent do you reckon it's because the government's role in trying to you know serve the public mm. is outdated because yeah. we've been hyping about this book a lot but we read Fukuyama's yeah. book Identity mm-hmm. and he argues that the change of global culture shifts the public demand towards the government so the government was only um, providing material and physical needs of the public, but mm. now what the public needs is actually dignity, sense of acceptance, and yeah, yeah. how would this be involved in the way the government makes policy and yeah. the way we change the system? Because yeah, and it it will shift over time as well. So, are we always behind? In- well, look, I mean, again, without going back to big tech, but I mean it. The difficult about regulating is that you don't have people sitting in Canberra that are re- experts at this sort of stuff. So it's always, you know, following rather than st- staying ahead. I mean, to me, the the problem about you know a system of you know bureaucratic uh, government in this day and age. I mean, it provides coordination, it provides certainty, which is one of the things that re- people really want. We're all being human beings, we wake up every morning, you know, wanting some sort of predictability about what we do, but it's still organised around this idea that, you know, all expertise is siloed. You know, if you're coming up with a problem, there are certain people organised in a hierarchical system that, will, you know, if the top of the tree means you can see further and farther than everyone else, and that's just not true in this day mm. and age. In fact, you're the last person to know what's going on if you're sitting mm. at the top of the tree in some instances. So it's really just a – it's not, I mean, the hardest thing in the world to do is change structures that have been around forever, but – you know, recognising that what has changed in the last 20 years is as fundamental as the Great Enlightenment in the way that it's reorganised people's just access to information and, and their own ability to make decisions. Everyone is, is an expert in theory. Now, that gets dished a lot because it gets used by conservatives particularly to say that, you know, you've got a whole bunch of people that don't know what they're talking about entering into debates, blah, 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 that they shouldn't do. But... Again, it's about trying to capture this incredible, rich diversity of supercharged information and opinion in a way that the system can understand. And again, it's not necessarily changing the system, but it's changing the configurations of the inputs. So the 21st century delivery of inputs, the way it's structured through social media, through, you know, People sitting at home and on the internet suddenly becoming probably more expert on mm. some issues than people sitting at the top of the tree. Finding ways to actually incorporate, you know, this incredible empowerment, positive empowerment, into a system that still thinks that the people who are the smartest are the people that have been sitting in a system and sitting at the top of the tree, you know, t- for 20 or 30 years. So, again, it it sounds very pessimistic, but if you look at the first principles of what a democratic society is all about, it's about maximising the potential of the inputs, Mm. i.e. people's opinions and choices, organising it in a way Mm. that a system can make sense of. The link between good inputs and good outputs, you'll get bad outputs if you have bad inputs. You'll have bad outputs if you have good inputs that aren't organised or structured in a way. Mm. that the system can make sense of. So to me, the answer is really just acknowledging the absolute systemic nature of the change that's gone on over the last 20 or 30 years through the internet and social media and find constructive ways of using that rather than being a Jordan Peterson saying, oh, look, it just shows that you're a barista with bad character. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the the response is that people keep retreating back to these age-old solutions that used to be great in the good old days if you just listened to your dad and made your bed and you know 
didn't spend all your money on smashed avocado. I mean, it's yeah. just it's, <laughs> it's a real nonsense argument. Um, it doesn't solve anything. It just mm. creates mm. more division. And to me, it's really infantile because it doesn't face up to what is a really, really, you know, potentially a wonderful opportunity to um, really remake things and really empower people in a positive way. But that entails that people actually have to let go of the past, you know. I mean, we have this thing about privileged white middle-aged men like me um, having to let go and realise that, you know, they're no longer in power, that there are other things happening. And that is what, you know, I think half the problem is. I just wanted to kind of bring it back to a more of a contemporary issue in terms of social media without with leaving yeah. out the the big tech um, algorithmic aspect, mm. especially with the recent bushfire catastrophes yep. and the recent mm. sports gate. Yep. How do you believe that the Morrison government is going to move forward with connecting with the public through a social media that's becoming ever more volatile towards yeah. his administration. I think there's two issues here. It's actually a really good question because, you know, what's been interesting is mm. how, and this is what happens in politics in this day and age, that the cycle is really, really quick. So, you know, mm. you could be on top of the world one week and then uh-huh. they always say a week is a long time in politics. Mm. When I was a political advisor, I'd say it's like a day yeah. or an hour because, you know, Do you the church. Ch- miracles? Well, <laughs> <laughs> not that sort of stuff, but. Um, <laughs> I guess it's controversial, but I think the political class is almost irredeemable. Mm. Mm. You know, I think the problem with the political class is that, you know, the, the way that, and I'm not getting stuck in the Morrison government, this mm. is a problem mm. with governments, democratic elected governments around the world, is that their time frames become more and more truncated. They become more reactive than proactive. Mm. Um, they're simply responding um, to the latest cycle, and the cycle is becoming more and more truncated. Mm. That you know what they're probably doing in Canberra and Scott Morrison's office now is trying to work out a seven-day plan, get things back on the road again. Mm. And their definition or objective of getting things back on the road again is the next opinion poll. Mm. I, I mean, there was some talk that Bridget. Mackenzie, the sense that you know what was wrong with doing what they did, but if you're in a situation or a culture where everything is about politics rather than good policy, mm. you're going to keep doing that, and you're going to keep believing that that is the organising principle of government. And if you are forced to reconcile that, then you're not going to then go back and say, "Oh, yeah, for the last." 20 years of my political career, I've suddenly realised I should be doing policy rather than politics. Mm. Again, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but and it's not nothing to do with the ideology or the who's in government, but the incentives for pot the political class to reform themselves are basically zero. Mm. It's like a monopoly, I mean, a duopoly. I mean, why would you open up the system to the people mm. when it's actually now an incredibly lucrative career path? I mean, most of these people skip out of politics and go into the corporate sector. Mm. Yeah, because it's very interesting because I was talking to Sheila last week in our introductory podcast about long-term policy in elections. And I believe that probably around the 2013 Tony Abbott-Rudd-Gillard-Rudd election that that was the last time I actually saw long-term policy kind of put forward to the people. And that recently... Um, with the Turnbull and the Morrison governments yep. that we've definitely seen that reactive policy-making trend, um, especially with the NEG, um, recent climate change policies that they're trying to rehash. But it probably, I have to say, again, it's an arbitrary thing. 2014, mm. to me, it was when Facebook became listed. Mm. When you combine the fact that Facebook over the last I mean, 10 years beforehand five years beforehand, suddenly became the forum mm. for every mm. political debate. And then you overlay that monopoly with a system of incentives that basically drive people to keep seeing what they've seen before, mm. which then drives polarisation because the market wants people to have certainty. Well, wants, the company wants to have certainty to know that the information that they're providing their consumers, i.e. everyone who, in the world on Facebook, mm. are going to react to it, clicking on it. So how do you do that? You just give them more and more and more and more and you just keep ratcheting up the level of intensity of it 
I mean, no one's doing this deliberately. It's mm. just the invisible hand of market forces that mean that a social media company with that reach to create the sort of revenue they need to to keep their share price where it is and where it wants to be, it just creates all these incredibly cascading incentives that ends up looking what we've got now. Mm. I mean, this is, I understand why your listeners think, why is this guy running, rabbiting on about the listening of Facebook in terms of political debate? But there is a causal link yeah. between the two. And every time you say, well, up until 2013, we had long term policy, up until 2013, we had this. Mm. I don't know whether it was 2014. In fact, I don't even know whether Facebook listened to 2014, but it was around that time mm. that I think when you look at it objectively, something has gone on mm. that has really extrapolated a lot of trends, coalesced them together into something which is just akin to, I think over the last five years, people look at the, this five-year period, if it's not stopped, is that we went into a fit of collective global madness mm. and hopefully we'll come out of it. But I think you can only come out of it by regulating big tech. Well, I have to agree that in the past five years, everything has kind of gone pear-shaped, and especially in terms of social media, because when you look on Facebook nowadays, you'll see bunches of comments below posts, especially on news sites, about one person having an opinion different to the other, and you're like, oh, that's... Sometimes your, your mind just blocks it out. But during certain periods, you're like, this is going to affect and have a massive impact on the outcome. So rolling back to uh, 2017, uh, oh no, sorry, 2018, I think it was when Malcolm Turnbull's rolled by Scott Morrison, mm. there was this idea that the media is the one that drove that and that through the clicks on social media yeah. with the constant updates yeah, of yeah. Um, Peter Dutton and yeah. the listings that people were driving that and people were having a massive impact on that through social media and that we ended up with Scott Morrison as our prime minister because we just kept our attention on it and that kept the politicians short term. And I think that's the thing that, what, what I wrote in my thesis was that the real, the real break over the last 20, 30 years is, well, I call it this transition from modernity to radical modernity. What I basically said, and people sort of isolate the factors, but they don't realise that they actually come together and they create this incredible dynamic that no one has ever seen before. So things become super scaled mm. by information. You know, just everything has become, you know, markets, uh, globalisation, combination of internet globalisation, become super, things become super sped, information uh, particularly, but change, um, and things become super complex. So people say, oh, it's the age of acceleration, and that's the problem, people are short term, or everything's so big now, I don't understand it, and we can't fix it like climate change, or it's so complex, everything's been a wicked problem. Mm. Everyone focuses on one of those things, but they actually join together. So, you know, if you've done physics, if you join speed and scale, you get momentum. If you join super speed and super scale, you get super momentum. Mm. So when you have a political issue, suddenly it scales up and mm. speeds up to a point where the politicians go, oh, my God, I'm not in control of this anymore. Yeah. It looks like they are, but they're not. Mm. So, and that's the problem with the democratic system is that it's, it's geared toward this very languid way of doing stuff and you have to caucus and you have to do this and you blah, 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 blah. Why the executive is now at the steering wheel of democracies because they can just get stuff done now, mm. whereas the legislature have to go through first reading, second reading. I mean, the whole temporal nature of parliament is geared to the 19th century. Mm. So it gets bypassed. You just get Trump doing stuff. It looks like Putin because Putin is an executive. And it looks like China because the reason why partly they look effective is because it's just a politburo of people who just do stuff like that. I mean, it fails, as we've seen mm. with the, you know, where the information doesn't get there quickly. I mean, when you understand why the liberal democratic system is failing, you've just got to say, well, this system was like invented by a bunch of people who drove around in a horse and buggy <laughs> and, you know, communicated with people by letter. Mm. Everything else has been disrupted. The problem with the political system is that we have this mystical view that democracy can never fail. Mm. I agree. In theory, it doesn't fail, but the delivery mechanism, which is tied to the historical nature of where it came out of, the liberal democratic system organised around 
what I think is a really bizarre way of actually getting people to represent you. Every four years, an election is effectively a head-counting exercise. That is it. (laughs) It's nothing more than that. And we get our heads counted every four years or three years, and then whoever has the most heads on their side gets to represent everyone else. Mm. Mm. Now, in itself, that should be the core of the system. But to think that that is the only way to manage the input into democracy, and we all have submission processes and we all have consul- and we all know that that is nonsense and it's yep. just pre-programmed and narrow-banded to get the outcome they want. Mm. And people are wondering why there is no trust in the system because it's not that people... People want choice. They want control of their destiny. But if you think that your destiny is going to be in control by a bunch of people who are in student politics, then a local council, then in a you know that weird career path that ends up making them more and more removed from the reality of you know of everyday life, they become your voice mm. for four years by dint of an abacus style head counting exercise mm. every four years. Then oh. why on earth? would you invest trust in that system Mm. when everything else in this day and age in terms of people's choices are decided in in really much more sophisticated ways i'm not saying they're good ways you know algorithmic nature of getting stuff thrown at you at the internet based on you know whether you know stuff we don't even know about but at least as a way of organizing people's choices Mm. it's much a little bit more reflective of what people want so, again, without ranting, to me, this none of this is a mystery, mm. but you actually have to be honest about what the illness is and diagnose it properly before you realise how sick the patient is and then inst- implement a series of measures that are not just take two Band-Aids and call me in the morning. You yeah. actually <laughs> have to start rearranging stuff mm. at a really deep level. And we haven't talked about the difference between policy and politics. But the reason why policy doesn't get a look into politics is because mm. the system is just nuts and toxic. You know, the empirical-based information in the age of social media where most people get their information from a, effectively a toxified environment. Mm. How do you cut through with fact? Mm. Where fact is just always disputed yeah. every, like by the whims of one comment, yeah. which is pretty outlandish to me yeah yeah and look when you think about policy and politics they're almost two different things so Mm. policy is long term it's about the collective interest it's about fact-based and when you look at the political system it's always been a tension you know there's always been this issue about politics corrupting policy but when you think about politics short-term electoral driven special interest it's always been like that and you know, we just make it up as we go along, not fact-based. That's always been the dichotomy which has been resolved and, you know, reasonably successfully for most of democracy's life. But mm. the difference and the wedge between what effectively are two different mindsets is now almost unbridgeable mm. because the system keeps delivering politics and not policy. Mm. It keeps delivering it. It's incentivized to keep in a system which is stranded from the realities of the 21st century keeps delivering a, a hyper version of politics. I don't know, it's just fantastic, it's fantastic to have yeah. like a guest sit and just really, who knows really what they're talking about. It's absolutely fantastic. Oh, well, look, they managed to pull that off. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, no, as you say, I, I feel really passionate about it because... Mm. Um, and it's good to know. show because it really shows us who... Uh, not to say that you're growing old, Mark, but you know who are coming old. up in the education system and who are really, really interested in policy, like what the real difference is, um, actually what politics is and what policy is and what policy should be in the mm. long term. And I think when you talk about that dichotomy, I think ultimately that's the underlying challenge is to bring those two things back together into balance. Mm. But that recognises, you know, reforming both sides of it. You know, mm. the policy input system, you can't rely on hierarchically driven, you know, organised experts. I mean, everyone is an expert. Mm. Everyone is an expert. But you need to reform the political system so that potential of good expertise is corralled and organised in a way which, you know, it's not a free-for-all. Mm. Nothing is a free-for-all in human society. I mean, I, I did sociology many, many years ago and as a honours degree, and it taught me that even though, you know, humans... Are, very self-actualizing 
they have to organise themselves because mm. that's what we are, the nature of the human condition. Mm. So you have to get over this idea that, you know, because we've got all these things and all these choices that we can do everything and do it. It's just not possible. Mm. So you need to make choices about what you want and you need to make choices about what you want from your political system to get what you know you need mm. so that's the challenge bringing those two things together but they both need a huge process of rethinking all right i think that's a great way to end our discussion mm. today yeah definitely thank you mark that was a really nice discussion mm. thank oh, you so much fun. for coming thanks for having me and putting up with me oh no it's just it's great to have a, a person who really knows what they're talking about yeah. in and and really help the listeners kind of have an idea without us just ranting off and making random assumptions mm. <laughs> yeah anyway um i well just for the record i think it's a really great initiative and hopefully you get lots of uh listeners and that's the thing i think it's really really interesting about your generation is that you know Despite what Jordan Peterson says, yeah. <laughs> that you're, you know, compared to my generation, which is uh, at least one or two higher, further back than you guys, <laughs> much more interested in politics, much more interested in what is a good society, much more interested in policy than my generation ever was. Uh, and the frustrating thing for me is that you just don't have the system that actually actualizes that. Mm. So, you know, that's the challenge for your generation. Yeah, we've got the most information. but Absolutely. Not, and the most passion and, you know, yeah. the most altruism and the most, uh, you know, all the really good things. And I just think it's a bit of a, it's really unfortunate that you're inheriting a system that's just nonsense. Well, that's what we'll try and work on, hopefully, exactly. as we, as we yeah. go on. Yeah. And yeah. That's, so that's definitely yeah. what... And, and I hope that the listeners can also have an idea of of what they want to get out of social media and what they want to get yeah. out of the system as yeah. well. And that yeah, yeah. we kind of break the glass around what social media means to us yeah. and how we can move forward afterwards as well. Yeah. So. All right. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure. Thanks, Sheila and Jared, for having <laughs> Thank me. Thank you so much, Mark. All right. Um, thanks, Policy Heads, for listening. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, like and share. And I'll see you all next time. See you next week. Bye. See ya.